Daniel chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Don't stand uh, tonight. We're, we're going to just work our way through this text. And sometimes you do this in a long text. And, um, and rather than have you stand, we'll read it as we go. And, and some of you are thinking, thank you for that, uh, because it would have taken a while to read this. We're going to be looking at most of the, the, the passage, most of the chapter today, and then finishing up the next time that we're in Daniel, uh, which would likely be Wednesday. But, but I want to look tonight at this uh, account of the king, Daniel, in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar um, has another dream. And it seems like every time we open the book, he, Nebuchadnezzar's dreaming about something. And so um, this, is, this is one of those texts that there's a dream and there's an interpretation. And there's a message here that I think is good for us and one that I think we need. Isn't it true that very often the things that you need the most, you like the least? Um, that, you know, the things that, that we really need, you know, if it's a doctor visit or a dental procedure or or something difficult the things that you tend to like the least you need the most and a message like this tonight is maybe one of those because I'll be dealing with the issue of pride tonight in Daniel chapter 4 and that is one of those we like the least but we might need the most is pride and a message on pride. So let's pray and then we'll jump into this. Daniel chapter 4. Father, we need you and I pray that you bless us as we um, walk through the text. That you would help us, Lord, to get what we need from this. And help us to examine ourselves uh, in light of this account. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Uh, well, with the NFL playoffs going on recently, um, not that I have anything to care about anymore after last Sunday. Um, me and my cowboy fans have been mourning all week. Actually, we were expecting it, so it's not a big deal. Um, but, you know, you have those debates uh, at the end of a season of the GOAT debates. Do you know what I mean by the GOAT, the greatest of all time? That's the GOAT, somebody who's the GOAT. They're the greatest of all time. And you have these debates in sports um, and maybe in football with quarterbacks who would, you, who would you say might be the GOAT? Please don't say Kirk Cousins, okay? Uh, who would you say might be the GOAT in NFL football? Manning, Brady. Those are two of the names that come right to the top right away. Uh, my wife, uh, her family's a 49ers fan, so she might would say Joe Montana, although I'm, I assume he's a product of the system that they played back then, but, but you know, now I'm not going to get to sleep in my bed tonight. I'll be on the couch you know, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Joe Montana. If you're not a sports fan, I, I'm sorry. Um, these are just debates we have because we have nothing else better to do with our time. Um, maybe, okay, what about in basketball? What's the, de the GOAT debate in basketball? What's the first name you think of? Michael Jordan, is there a debate? I don't personally think so. Um, but, but who else would be in the conversation? Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, these would be the goats, the greatest of all time. And, and I don't know how, if baseball is a big deal to you, but who would be, who, what's a baseball name you think of when you think about the goat? Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, it's the first name I think of. I also think of Hank Aaron, who is the all-time home run leader, um, a long time for Milwaukee and Atlanta. Uh, Willie Mays would be another one. Uh, big names like that, Mickey Mantle, those kinds of names. 
Um, you know, in boxing, Brother Juan, Brother Boxing, who's the GOAT? Who, Pacquiao, Manny Pacquiao, like pound for pound, right? Who else? Who's another boxer? I don't even... Tyson, okay. Mayweather, Mayweather used to just run around the ring and wear people out, you know? So, you know, you, you, and, the, and the reason I bring this up is because we like to debate this. We like to talk about this. We, we like to get into these discussions. And, and I know there, that these debates are of no real consequence, uh, but for some reason we like it. And I think, here's why, I think because we like the thought of being the best. Being the best appeals to us. I, I think it's kind of a product of, of our human nature of pride that we even talk about it. That, that it, pride has kind of always been at the root of our desire to be the best. You think about the first sin um, was Satan. He was cast out of heaven. Ezekiel 28 gives us some insight. He was, he was perfect, the Bible says, until iniquity was found in him. And what was the iniquity? Well, his heart was lifted up. He was beautiful. He was perfect. He was uh, not perfect. He was beautiful and he was bright and he was probably a glorious angel. And because his heart was lifted up, that iniquity of pride, God cast him out of heaven. And not only that, then he went right after then God's creation in the garden. He went after Eve and he appealed to her in what way? What did he say to Eve? What did he tell her she could be like? He said, you could be like God. So here's, here's Satan, the original sin of pride. I can be like God. I will be like the most high. Then he gets cast out of heaven. And when creation comes along, he goes in the garden uh, as a serpent. And he appeals to Eve by saying, you can be the goat. You can be the greatest. You can be like the most high. He appealed to her pride. It all points to pride being our original and greatest problem. It's our greatest sin. And from the beginning, it was called iniquity in Satan. It caused his downfall. It caused the downfall in the garden. It, caused the, it causes us to fall all the time. Pride. And it's that unwarranted lifting up of oneself based on our achievement or our status or our appearance or our possessions. Uh, and anything that we have that we can elevate or be proud of, we tend to do it. And the reason it's so offensive to God is it because it involves pre us pretending to have greatness or glory that belongs to God only. Right. See, there's only one greatest of all time, and it's not you. There's only one greatest of all time, and it's not me. There's only one greatest of all time, and it's certainly not Satan, even though he wanted to be. And it makes the whole conversation about who's the goat comical. Because there's only one and none of us compare to him. See, that's the thought that brings us to Daniel chapter 4. Because we're dealing with a man who clearly thinks he's the goat. He clearly thinks he's the greatest of all time. Daniel 4 begins a number of years after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their encounter with the fiery furnace in Daniel 3. And there's some believe that this is likely maybe even 30 years later because this takes place toward the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign um, and the end of his kingdom. And, and, he, and the, Daniel 4 is written as a letter from Nebuchadnezzar in first person. He's writing about an experience that he has. And so I, I want to just read through some of these verses and get an idea of what he's saying. Look at verse 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth 
peace be multiplied unto you. Now, it's already kind of silly that here he is thinking that every person, every tongue on earth, um, that he can grant peace to them. You know, so you kind of maybe get an idea into his, his thought process, although he writes this after the lessons that he's learned. See, we do think he has some good perspective because look at verse 2. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. You do get the idea that on some level, Nebuchadnezzar has gained a proper view of God. I'm not saying that all of his pride has been rid him but he, but he has some idea. He has gotten a glimpse of God. And we'll find out as we go through this, especially the next sermon, what actually happens to him. Um, but, it's in, but, but Nebuchadnezzar, we know he has a vast empire. Uh, everyone that he's gone up against, he has defeated. And, and he has learned that he's nothing compared to God. Then we get to the body of the letter, beginning in verse 4. And I just, Nebuchadnezzar has, has a dream. And, and I just kind of maybe want to say, you need to stop eating so late. Or maybe stop eating anchovies on your pizza right before bed. Because he seems like he's always having a dream. Look at verse 4. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. So here he is, Nebuchadnezzar. He's self-satisfied. He's just resting There are no wars. He's conquered everybody. He says, flourishing in my palace. And the word flourishing actually means green. So when a plant is flourishing and healthy, what color is it? It's green, typically. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, he's green. He's healthy. He's flourishing. He's content. He has no need. Now, Now, understand, he's writing this after the fact. I want to just make sure we understand He's writing this letter to all the people after he's already gone through this experience. So he's looking back. He says, I have learned that there's only one God. His, his, his dominion is from generation to generation. He's the most high. How great are his signs? How great are his wonders? And then he's writing this letter. He says, see, it was a while back, and I was sitting in my house just flourishing. I was at rest. There were no wars. I had conquered everybody. I had no need of anything. I I had everything I ever wanted. I really, even in that moment, didn't even need God. And then, you know, that's something about pride is it's at its strongest when we lose sight of our dependence on God. It's very often that we, we, we gain pride or we build pride in our hearts after we've done something. After we've made a progress, after we've, we've made some headway in some area, I've heard it said that the sunshine of prosperity is a greater danger than the storms of adversity. See, when things are good, you tend to forget about God. One man named Rawlinson wrote this, We can bear the world's frowns, the buffets of fortunes, the cruelty of oppressors, the open attacks of rivals and enemies. We can resist them, we can defy them, and still maintain our integrity, but let the world smile... Let fortune favor us, let riches increase, let friends spring up on all sides, and how few of us can stand the sunshine. 
how few of us but drop the habits of prayer, of communing with God, of constant reliance upon him, which were familiar to us in the darker times. See, achievements and pride often go hand in hand. And here's a man who has conquered the world. He has everything he's ever needed. We, you know, we, and, and in those moments, we forget who the Most High is. And we start to take credit for things we could never have produced without him. Nebuchadnezzar is, is flourishing. He doesn't need God. Then he has a dream. It's, I call it the dream of the cosmic tree. You say, that sounds weird. Well, have you ever had a weird dream? And you're trying to like just put it together and it's the most random thing you've ever heard. You're almost embarrassed to say, how could my brain have come up with this? Well, this is what Nebuchadnezzar does. Look at verse five. I'll just read the first part. It says, I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Has your dreams ever troubled you? Again, like the, the visions of my head troubled me. What was going on in this brain scared me. Does it ever scare you what goes on in your brain? Yeah, me too. Okay. It terrifies him. So he, he so verse six, I'll just read it. Therefore made I a decree to, to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. He has this troubling dream. He's terrified. And so he calls all of his wise men, all of his sages in. To, this sounds so familiar. It's like deja vu all over again uh, here. He, he calls all of his men in and it finds out that they're no better now than they were like 35 years before this. Verse 7 says, Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof, because they were a bunch of posers. Okay, that's, I read into that, into the Hebrew. They were fake. They're not real. Uh, they, they're, not, they're not actually in tune, and they can't do anything to help him. So look what Nebuchadnezzar does. He calls old reliable. Verse 8, but at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, he calls old reliable, a big D, you might call him, Daniel. And he says, these guys are useless. I need you again. And you helped me before. You can help me again. He still has respect for Daniel. At one time, he had acknowledged the power of Daniel's God. And he says, I need you to come in and, and help me with this again. Verse 9, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. Now, at this point, remember, he's writing back based on something that happened. He's, a, he's certainly a polytheist, meaning that he believes in many gods. And, and probably to this point, anytime he's given credit to the God Jehovah or Yahweh, Daniel's God, he simply said, your, your God is the greatest of all the gods. But he still obviously believes in many gods. He's not giving Daniel's God full credit right here. So Nebuchadnezzar then goes into the dream and tells Daniel what it is. Verse 10, thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and the height thereof was great. So this tree is in the midst of the earth, meaning that it's at the center of attention. Everyone is aware of it. Everyone can see it. And you'll start to understand that it's very obvious what this tree is representing. Okay. Verse 11, the tree grew and was strong 
and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. Everyone could see this tree. It was clear, it was obvious, it was in a place where everyone could see it. It's this big, strong tree. It's, um, it's visible to all the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 12, the leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. It was such a healthy tree, it produced so much fruit that, that, it, that it fed all the animals, it gave them everything that they needed to eat, there was abundant fruit, it was productive enough to sustain life. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head, I just love the way he says that, I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed and behold a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. You start to see that, that the dream that was so good at the beginning, maybe it's, it, things are going to start falling apart. Because he says there was somebody in heaven, a watcher. And this watcher um, is, is watching what's going on and comes down. Now, I would just want to say it's noteworthy to me that no matter how gigantic this tree was, the watcher, the Holy One, had to come down to the tree. And that's an indication that even though this tree is super high, that it still doesn't actually reach the most high. So this watcher, this holy one, it's most likely some angelic being in his dream. It's sent to deliver a message to this proud, arrogant king. Verse 14, he cried aloud and said thus, hew down the tree and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit, let the beasts get away from under it, and the fowls from under his branches. He said, this watcher, this holy one from heaven, comes down and says, cut down the tree, get rid of the tree, take the leaves off, get rid of the fruit, scatter all the animals that are sitting under the tree, being provided for under it, and, and at the end, there will be nothing left but a stump. Look at verse 15. It says, nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let, the, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. So even though this holy one comes down and he says, cut down this tree, cut it down to a stump, he says, don't remove the stump, leave the stump leave the roots, and he references bands of iron and brass, and that is the indication that this, is, this stump is going to be protected. Meaning that the tree isn't, that, that, that the tree's not done yet. For now it's going to be cut down, but it's not completely done yet. And, and, but, but in the meantime, there's no protection from the elements. The dew of the, of the, the, dew of the morning will make it wet. There's no protection here. And it obviously represents a person or a kingdom. If you're starting to get the idea, look at verse 16. Let his heart be changed from man's and let a beast's heart be given unto him and let seven times pass over him. So now it's no longer a tree. Now it's being referenced as a person. This tree's heart will uh, let it go from being a man. It says basically it'll become an animal. 
So this person, this person's heart will become like an animal. And, and the person, this individual, is going to suffer a mental breakdown, a mental con- condition in which the person believes himself to be an animal. He'll live like an ox and he'll eat grass and he'll live outdoors. And the seven times that it says there at the end of verse 16, seven times pass over him, that refers to seven years. So for seven years, this person that was once a strong, tall tree and thought it was reaching heaven and providing shade and provision for all of the earth will be cut down to the stump. And for seven years, what was once this strong person will live like an animal and eat grass in the field. Verse 17, this matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know, listen, that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basis of men. So obviously this dream is some kind of an object lesson against pride in the inhabitants of the earth. Here's the message, regardless of who is in power on earth, there's only one most high. His name is God, and he rules in the kingdom of men. He gives the right to rule to whomever he chooses. God is the one that oversees those things. And though we might say uh, that the dream's interpretation is obvious, Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel in verse 18, I need you to tell me what this thing means. I need you to let me know what is meant by this dream. And sometimes I, I, I wonder maybe if Nebuchadnezzar actually knew what he was about to hear and just didn't want to hear it, or, or if he really was being this dense that he didn't understand what the dream is about. Verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's Babylonian name, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. So here we go into the interpretation. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonied for one hour. That means astonished. And his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to to thine enemies. What he's saying, at first he doesn't want to give the interpretation. I believe he knows what the interpretation is, but he's afraid either of giving the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar or he doesn't want to wound him or he doesn't want to hurt him. And Nebuchadnezzar says, just tell me, just just spit it out, let me know. Basically, you have the, I'll give you permission, you just tell me what you're going to say even though he's reluctant. Just tell me the truth, give it to me straight and Daniel says um, this dream he says the dream be to them that hate thee and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies what he's saying is king I wish that I could say this dream was about those the people that hate you at that point you had to think Nebuchadnezzar knows it's not good Daniel says I wish that this was a dream about your enemies but, but, but Nebuchadnezzar has to know that this is, this is going to end poorly. 
So Daniel then explains the dream. In verse 20, it says, The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. Daniel's good at remembering details, by the way, apparently. Look what he says in verse 22. Three strong words. It is thou. It is you, king, thou that, that art grown and become strong. That's who you are. You're the strong tree. This cosmic tree represents you. For thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven. Thy, thy, thy dominion to the end of the earth. He says this represents you. This dream is about you. And while he says, you know, you're the tall tree. You're the strong tree. You're the one whose influence reaches to the earth. Nebuchadnezzar's like, oh yeah, this is me. Then he remembers the second half of the dream. This tree gets cut down. Verse 23. And whereas the king saw a watcher and an holy one coming down from heaven and saying, How, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet the, leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, meaning there's no protection, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. Verse 25, that they shall drive thee from men and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over thee till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that, thou shalt have known what the, that the heavens do rule. And he says that this is you. You'll be cut down. You'll be cast out like an ox in seven years. You'll be living like an animal. Uh, and, and he says very clearly, and it is not until you learn the lesson that there's only one most high that you can be brought back in and that you'll be restored to the way that, that you're intended to be. Look at verse 27. Wherefore, O king, look at this. Let my counsel be acceptable unto thee and break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. It may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. See, Daniel calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent. He says, if you'll repent, you might can avoid the calamity that is coming for you. He counsels the king to break off or renounce his sins by doing right and showing mercy to the poor. And basically what he says is all that, uh, all that you have to do to prove that you acknowledge God's sovereignty is to humble yourself. To cast off your sin. Cast off your righteousness. See, Daniel, if Daniel's a good friend, and we don't know what their relationship was like these last few decades, but I imagine the king is just full of himself. 
And Daniel's doing his thing. He's, he's ruling. He's doing something important. And the king's doing his thing. But here's Daniel being a good friend and telling him, if you will repent, if you'll cast off your sins, if you'll renounce this unrighteousness, then it could be that you could avoid these dreadful consequences with, humil with humility. And he gives the king fair warning. See, every person has the choice between judgment or repentance. And all the king had to do was humble himself and repent of his sinful pride. I don't mean that he would avoid all the consequences, but it'd be a whole lot better for him if he would get right. The implication is that he could avoid the, the pending judgment if he would humble himself. But we find out as we go through this, we'll look at it more next time. Another year passes and the king doesn't listen. He never submits. He never renounces his pride, and the judgment comes just like the dream says. See, he's one of those guys that has to learn the lesson the hard way. Are you one of those pre people? I mean, you have warning, you have people tell you, and you just have to learn the hard way. It seems like every family has those that learn the hard way. You, our children, we've got some that you just, they straighten up with a look. Then you have some that you, that you give them a warning or you give them a look and they straighten up, but on their heart, they're not happy. And then you have the ones that are from another planet and it doesn't matter what you tell them or what you do, they don't learn the lesson unless they go to the emergency room. And sometimes we can be that way, can't we? That we hear the warnings and we have friends that tell us and we have the Bible and it tells us very clearly, here's all that you need to do. Here's the warning. All you have to do is humble yourself and get this right. But we're so pig-headed that we have to learn the lessons the hard way like Nebuchadnezzar and pride would eventually cost him everything. But this account is here for you and it's here for myself. And that is this, that pride is our problem and we have plenty of warnings about it. Pride goeth before destruction, and in haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Matthew 23, 12. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself, humble himself shall be exalted. We have warnings by way of examples as well. We have Nebuchadnezzar right here, somebody who was warned and refused to submit, and they were brought very low. King Uzziah died because in, in Isaiah 6 because he tried to offer on the altar when it wasn't his place and God smote him with leprosy. Hezekiah became proud of his accomplishments and in 2 Chronicles uh, he brought wrath upon himself and Judah. Herod refused to give God glory in Acts chapter 12 and the Bible says that he was eaten with worms. Satan was cast out of heaven. Eve ate the fruit and Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. Pride leads to judgment every single time. Pride leads to a fall every single time. It's an abomination that the Lord hates and God resisteth the proud. That means that he literally takes his place in front of us and he blocks every move we try to make. And I'm telling you, you will never win against that. There's no way to avoid the fall. Pride always ends in a fall. And if you have pride because of some achievement or some success, get ready for a fall. If you have forgotten God in pride and you no longer give him credit for what's good in your life, you are headed for a fall. And if you have pride because of your spirituality and because of your religious achievements or involvement, then you are in for a fall. There is nobody that can avoid this universal truth. 
And tonight, I, I just want to look simply at three things we have in common with Nebuchadnezzar that we ought to be very careful about. Number one is this. Pride makes us think we'll be the exception. Pride makes us think that we will be the exception. See, Nebuchadnezzar has God's word. I mean, he has very clear warning and he ignored it. He must have just thought, well, I'm so powerful, I can avoid judgment. Sometimes like we think, well, you know, I've been saved so long, there's no way I'll fall into that sin. You know, I, I've never done that before, so there's no way I'm going to do that now. How foolish for us to say that. We have God's word and we have warnings and we know that disobedience to God results in judgment. Yet we can hear things and not change uh, what we know that we should. Why? Why are we like that? I don't know about you, I'm like that. I hear things, I know I need to change it, but I keep putting it off. Why are we like that? Well, because we think we'll be the exception. We think that we'll be the first one to prove God wrong. But no one avoids the judgment of pride. Did Nebuchadnezzar, now did Nebuchadnezzar have reason to believe what Daniel said about his dream? Maybe he's like, Daniel doesn't have any credibility. No, Daniel has plenty of credibility. He's proven himself. Uh, so why would Nebuchadnezzar continue on this path to judgment? Well, here's why. Because pride deceives us. He knew judgment was coming, but he was so self-deceived that he didn't bother humbling himself. Galatians 6.3 says this, For if a man thinketh himself to, think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Pride deceives us. Obadiah 3.1 says, The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, that thou dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground. Listen, folks, pride will be our downfall every single time. And we know judgment is coming, but pride deceives us, and we think we'll be the exception. So that's the first thing we have in common. We think pride makes us think we'll be the exception. Number two, pride causes us to take credit for what we have when it's really all from God. It causes us to take credit for the things that we have when it's really all from God. Here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's living a life of ease. He's flourishing. He's green. He's resting, relaxing, there's peace, he's conquered everybody, but those things only happen because of God's help. And if he had been listening the last time he had a dream, turn back to Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. Read what Daniel tells him, told him 30-something years before. Look at this, Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, uh, let's start in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. Look at Daniel 2.21. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. If, if Nebuchadnezzar had been listening the last time, he would know that the only reason he's the king and the only reason he's conquered anybody is because God, for some reason, had grace on Nebuchadnezzar. He showed him some mercy. It's not about Nebuchadnezzar and what he's earned. The only reason that he had anything was because God sets up kings and God removes kings. And the only reason, listen, that we have anything good is because we have a father who shows us grace. The only reason you have a good marriage is because of God's grace. So stop looking down on others that might be struggling because if not for the grace of God, there go we. The only reason you've stayed in church when others haven't is because of God's grace and God's help. So stop looking down on those that are struggling with that because if not for the grace of God, there go I. 
The only reason you're not addicted to sin or some drug or alcohol and living under a bridge tonight and somebody else might be is because of God's mercy in your life and God's grace in your life. And if not for the grace of God, there go I. See, this will impact how we treat each other because if I can just remember that anything I have that's good has nothing to do with me and it's all about God, it will change the way that I talk to you and the way that I interact with you and not only that, the way that I interact with every person I come across because if not for God's grace, we'd be in the exact same position tonight. Pride causes us to think we'll be the exception. Pride causes us to take credit for what we have when it's really all from God. And the third thing that we have in common with Nebuchadnezzar is this. Pride will impact all of our relationships from God down. It'll impact everything that we have, every person that we know from God, starting with God and all the way down to everybody else. See, Nebuchadnezzar was on heaven's radar. There's a watcher. An angelic watcher who saw his pride and God sent him as an agent of judgment because no act of pride is hidden from heaven. But notice something else as we read through that. For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar's realm was without his leadership. For seven years while he's off, and we'll look at this next time, he's off living in the wilderness and eating grass. For seven years, the people that he was supposed to be providing for had no leader. In the the story, in the dream, the animals that were under the shade of the tree, they had no shade anymore. They had no fruit anymore. They weren't provided for anymore. They were no longer sustained. They were scattered. And this is what pride does. It damages the relationships we have with people we should be taking care of and providing for. See, pride impacts a family because as as a husband, as a father, if I'm all about myself, then I won't be doing what's best for everybody else in my home that's depending on me for, for, for those things. And pride impacts a family. A husband and wife, they work against each other instead of with each other, and the home suffers. A young person uh, who, who makes everybody in the home miserable because they want their own way. The home can't be what it's supposed to be. Now, listen, if that's how we are at home, get ready for a fall. Pride impacts a church. How can we have unity if we're full of pride when we deal with each other? Get ready for a fall. I don't want to be part of that. Pride impacts a workplace. It impacts our interactions with the lost. Listen, get ready for a fall. It is guaranteed. Everyone, Proverbs 16, 5, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, how sure is it? He shall not be unpunished. Your pride will destroy everything that you hold dear. And there's only one answer. Humble yourself. Get on your face before God and admit it. Put away your pride and go to the person that you've hurt and be humble. Recognize there's only one most high. It's not you. And it's not me. The greatest most high dwells in heaven. And he could snuff us out at the first sign of arrogance. But he doesn't. You see, there's one more thing that we have in common with Nebuchadnezzar, and this is the good part, okay? That is this, number four, the proud are giving warnings and an opportunity to repent. The proud are given warnings and an opportunity 
to repent. God could have just, just like that, snuffed Nebuchadnezzar out. But he's a merciful God. And the, the fact that he would allow Nebuchadnezzar to have a dream about his downfall and give him a warning means that he didn't want to just stuff him out. He wanted to give him an opportunity to repent. And though pride is an abomination to God, he gives us second chances and third chances and fourth and fifth and one hundredth and one thousandth chances to humble ourselves and admit our sin and make things right. You can trade God's judgment for God's grace. What do you need to do? What do I need to do? You need to get low. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And that's all it takes for you to come to the end of yourself and the end of your pride and say, It's time for me to get low. It's time for me to get humble. In what area of your life do you need to get low? Is it at home, husbands? You just need to humble yourself before your wife and make something right. Is it at home, wives, with your husband? You say, I've been full of pride and I won't admit this or I won't do that. Children, is it with your parents? And you know that you've been full of pride in some area and you haven't humbled yourself and you've allowed it to go far too long. You need to get low. If you want God's grace instead of God's judgment, you must get low. You must be humble. Parents, is it with your children? You've been doing things in a way you know God isn't pleased with and it's time to get low and go to them and admit that you've been wrong and, and ask for forgiveness and just be humble. Is it at church? With some member of our church that you've had an issue with? Listen, this impacts a church family and I don't want to be the cause of a church that's disunified. It's time to get low. Is it a matter of personal pride and how you interact with each other and you do things a certain way to keep up this appearance? Get low. Is, it, sir, is there something that you need to just humbly confess before God and he know, you know he's been dealing with you about something? It's just, it's time to get low. And as long as there are human beings on earth, pride will be a problem. And that won't be fixed until Jesus fixes it all at the end. But until that, we've got to be on guard against this issue of pride. Benjamin Franklin said this. I don't even know if he's a saved man. But he says, there's perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down. Stifle it. Mortify it. As much as one pleases, it's still alive. Even if I could conceive that I'd completely overcome pride, I'd probably be proud of my humility. Well said, Mr. Franklin. Listen, your biggest issue is not that other person. It's not your spouse. It's not your boss. Kids, your biggest problem is not your parents. It's not the person that works next to you. At work, it's not the person in the other cubicle, it's not the fellow employee, it's not the other driver. Okay, usually it's the other driver. No, your biggest problem is you. My biggest problem is me. I'm I'm too proud. We're too proud. 
And it has you on a path to destruction and judgment. And you've heard warnings. But just like Nebuchadnezzar, you can repent. You have another opportunity to repent. And the question is not, can you? Because if you go to God humbly, he will receive you. The question is not, can you? The question tonight is, will you? There's only one throne. There's only one most high. Hint. It's not you. And if you will get a clear glimpse of the power and wisdom of God, you can't help but be humble. Maybe it's time tonight to get low about some issue of pride in your life. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. I'm telling you, it'd be better for us to learn because we hear the warning and we respond with humility. We could avoid the level of judgment we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar face. If we would just tonight consider how we need to get low when it comes to pride. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed.